In our gospel today, and in all of our readings, really, there's this continuous theme of being lost. Think of, in my past, uh, losing things that are really, really important. Like losing things that have like a deep sentimental value, right? I remember being on the March for Life one year. Uh, and for the March for Life, yeah, I've never been. It's like 500,000 people, and they go from the mall in D.C. to the, uh, the Supreme Court steps. And it's just this wave of people walking. And I remember walking in this crowd one time, and I had a particular rosary in my pocket. And as I was going, from time to time, uh, I would say a quick little prayer, and I would grab the rosary. Well, at one point, I put my hand in my pocket, and it was gone. And I remember, like, man, this, this rosary is, like, important to me. Like, I, I started freaking out. I was... I'm kind of frantic. I'm, I look like a third base coach, you know, like doing checking the pockets and what's going on. Like, I, I can't find it. Where, where is it? So I start to kind of panic. Um, get the chill up my, my spine. I, I, I feel the like the sweat start breaking and like the, the color starting to flush out my face. I'm, I'm looking for my rosary. I can't find it. So like, in in one of the rules with the March for Life is that you do not leave the group. And I said, no, I need to find this rosary that's much more important than this group. So I turned around and basically, I was like, I'm going to go and walk the opposite way of 500,000 people, um, which was very smart, and basically look down the entire time looking for the rosary on the ground. I'm going to retrace my steps. And for like 10 minutes, I was frantically looking for this rosary. And the whole time, it's just like, in the back of my mind, where is it, where is it, what do I do? I was freaking out. And, like, short little thing about the store, like, and it, it kind of fell, like, in a flap in my pocket, and I, it, I had it the whole time. Um, so the Lord made sure to, to get a good laugh out of it. But you might be thinking, it's just a rosary. Like, we, we Catholics, we, we give rosaries for everything. Like, First Communion, you get a rosary. Baptism, you get a rosary. Confirmation, you get a rosary. You got an A on the test, you get a rosary. Like, doesn't matter. You get a rosary for, for everything in the church. Like, we literally have them for free outside. You can grab a rosary. It's not a big deal. But it wasn't just any rosary. Like, while, while it may seem insignificant that it, yeah, it's just a rosary, like, this rosary, this one in particular, um, first of all, it was a gift from my grandfather. Uh, who died a couple of years before, he, like right after, like a couple of years after he gave it to me. So, like there was a sentimental value behind it. But then it also in the cross, um, there's a splinter of the true cross. So there was like a, a deeper kind of thing. And on top of that, like it's been passed down in our family now for three generations. So like when I went to the March for Life, my mom said, "Do not bring that rosary because you better not lose it." And it took about 30 seconds for me to realize my parents will kill me if I lose this thing. So that was part of that kind of fear, right? But it seems, like when I say rosary, it seems so insignificant. It's small. It's not a big deal. You can get another one. But to, to me, that, that rosary, it, there was no value on it. Like it, it, was, a, it was a bridge to my grandfather. It's, it's got a relic. Like it, it, It's really important to me. Today, in the, in the parables that we hear, we hear about things being lost. And in a particular way, we hear about how God, well, it's just not a sheep. It's not, not just any sheep. It's not just any coin. It's not just any son. 
in God's eyes, and in, like for the analogy, he looks at these things, he looks at us, and he says, ah, th- there's no value on that one. Like there's a value that's that's beyond what you can what you can imagine on that one that's missing. But to understand these, we have to understand their context. Like to understand these three parables, we have to understand who it is that Jesus is talking to and what is going on at that time. Like let's set the, let's kind of set the scene, right? So to begin, the gospel says that Jesus is sitting with. Tax collectors and sinners. Like Jesus is sitting with the social outcasts. Jesus is sitting with the ones, like the, the people that weren't like the popular people in the Jewish society. He's sitting with the group of people, like the tax collectors and the sinners, who are publicly known like to have a bad, pretty bad reputation. Like he's sitting with that girl. Or he's sitting with that guy who's just a little bit awkward. Like, those are the people that Jesus came and he immersed himself in. And of course, he kind of catches some criticism from, you know, your religious elite of the time, the Pharisees. They look at him and say, who, this guy, he's coming around here saying that he's the son of God, coming saying that he's divine, and these are the people that he's talking to? They're insignificant. They don't count. They don't really have value. And when Jesus hears this criticism, he gives them three stories. The first one talks about a lost sheep. And he says, What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the one? Think about that. What shepherd... The sheep are his livelihood, right? What shepherd is going to leave 99 sheep when he loses one and go find the one lost one? The shepherd that does that is a fool. The shepherd that does that is just stupid. You're going to really gamble with your 99 sheep to go for the one. Like growing up, we had a sheep farm. My, my grandfather had a sheep farm. And I remember going like around and I learned two things about sheep. One thing... They're, they're, they cannot defend themselves. And two, they're tasty. So basically, these two things make them just an easy target. They have no defense, and wolves love them. Who would gamble your livelihood, 99% of his livelihood, to go after a one? That's a foolish shepherd. The woman with the coin. She has ten coins. She loses one. Now, in commentaries, they'll, they'll discuss how much these coins were worth. It sounds like they're a pretty small amount. So the woman loses like the equivalent of a nickel. And she starts turning her house upside down to find this lost coin. It's a bit much. It's just a nickel. We go, to, we go to the drive-thru and we, we get our money back. If we drop a nickel, like we're not even opening the door for that. We're just leaving it. It's just a nickel. It's not that much. It has no value. Like That's not going to make or break you. Oh, well. Move on. In both cases, 
the parable is trying to take a social construct and turn it to reveal something about God. Because God doesn't see, he doesn't see just one sheep out of the hundred. He doesn't just see a, a, a small amount out of the nickel. When the Pharisees are hearing this, they're seeing the insignificant, the invaluable, the people that are surrounding Jesus. And that's, they, they can tell that's who the Lord's talking about. That's who it is that Jesus is pointing at. The insignificant, the small, the worthless. Because Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees and the religious elite, there's not a price on a human soul. Every human soul is valuable for God. And valuable to, to a degree that you can't understand. Every human soul, the greatest of creation that he, that he gave us was the human person. And that is, that's, that, that's what he upholds more than anything else. That's worth gambling to 99. For each individual human, each individual soul, that's who he calls to him. In that way, we can then look at the God, we can look at the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, this younger son, comes to his dad and says, "Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm done. I, I want my inheritance and I want to go now." Now it sounds like really proper and and very formal when he says, "Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me." In a way. This is basically like a death wish to his father. Like, I can't wait for you to die, so give me my money now. That's a lot heavier than it sounds. Give it to me now. Let me me get out of here. I'm done. So he takes his share. Like, he's breaking, he's trying to break his relationship with his father. Not only does he do that, but then he leaves his father's country and he goes off into this distant land. He leaves the promised land and he goes off into this distant country. So he geographically, he removes himself. So like he breaks his family bonds and then he just leaves. And then lastly, and for the Pharisees, this is the biggest thing. He makes himself ritually unclean. He makes himself not fitting to offer sacrifice and not fitting to be a part of the Jewish society because he's tending the swine. Like in the Jewish culture, swine and pigs, like that, it, it's a huge taboo. Like you don't, you don't touch the pigs. You don't, you, don't, you don't handle pigs. You don't eat pork. You don't do it. In the Old Testament, they call it an abomination to eat pork. Not only is this man around the swine, but he's the servant of swine. He brings the swine their food. He, in the eyes of the Pharisees, he's broken his family bonds, he's left the promised land, and he's put himself on the lowest possible rung of the social ladder that he can be. So, the, the audience that's hearing this is thinking, this guy is done. He is worthless. He is small. He is insignificant. There's nothing that can save this guy. He's No, he, write him off. But, as, as we know, the story continues and, and he repents. Like, 
he, he's, he kind of hits rock bottom and he starts practicing his little phrase that he's going to tell his dad. Like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer am called to be your son. Please hire me. Like, at least. And he comes back to his dad. And like the Pharisees are thinking, well, he's coming back to his dad. So how would the dad react? The dad's going to be like sitting on like some kind of like lazy boy throne kind of thing, waiting for his son to come back. And when he gets back, he's going to have to grovel and just like beg and beg and beg to be like and apologize a million times to be able to be back in the good graces of his dad. And then maybe he'll hire him as a servant. Like that's the kind of image that the, that the Pharisees have. That would be the just thing to do for all the stuff that he's done. Like by wishing his father dead, by leaving, and then by becoming ritually impure. And Jesus again turns it. He takes a social convention and he flips it. Not only, is it, not only does the Father not make him grovel, not only does the Father not make him come, approach him, not only does he just kind of sit back and kind of haphazardly listen to him, he goes out to meet him. Like he runs out to meet him. Like imagine that. It says that he sees him while he's still far off. Like this father, this good father is looking at the horizon, waiting for his son to come back. And he doesn't, once he sees him, once he gets a glimpse of him, he sprints to him. He runs to him. He does an undignified action to go and get him. And just like the sheep, just like the coin, and again, just like the sun, they have a party. They found the sheep, they find the coin, they find the son, and they want to rejoice in that. But that's not where the gospel ends. In fact, I think the last piece of the gospel oftentimes characterizes a sin that we can be prone to. Like good old Catholic, like good old, I go to Mass every Sunday, Catholics. The back half of this gospel, the very, the very end, characterizes probably like one of our most dangerous vices. The sense of self-righteousness. And it's characterized by the older son. The older son comes in and he hears the party going on. He sees that they have celebration going on. And what's going on? What happened? Like, what, looks at the servant. Like, what, what's going on? Check it out. We got a party. And the servant says, your, your brother came back. So your dad has killed the fatted calf. And they're having like the feast of all feasts. And instead of being excited that his brother's back, instead of being excited that his brother has turned from his ways, he gets mad. He gets bitter. And he says, no, I'm staying out. I'm not going in. I'm not going to celebrate this. I can't. So the father, being again a good father, not only did he go out to get his son who had fallen into sin and fallen into this life and, and left them and all this stuff, but he goes out and gets his other son. And when he goes out to meet him, basically, what are you doing? Come on. Like your brother's back. And the older son says, Look, all these years I served you. And not once did I disobey your orders. 
And you never gave me a young goat to feast with my friends. Like you have never, you've never given me a small thing to have a party. But instead, when your son comes back, who's done all these things, you, you throw a, like the party of all parties for him? And when he, and the language he uses is when your son comes back. Like think about it, we do that. We do that with our language. Like we got a problem in our family. It's like that's your sister-in-law. That's your brother. We we have a tendency to do that with our language, where we want to distance ourselves from the other person. We want to break that relationship. Instead of celebrating and being excited that he's back, the older brother holds all of his all of his baggage against him. And the father says, like basically says, I don't want to celebrate everything that he's done. I want to celebrate that he's here now. I want to celebrate that your brother is back home. That he's been that he's turned from his ways and come back. When we were in Poland, one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of mercy was said, it, and they said, mercy is like God, he, him not betting on our, not holding our past against us, but instead betting on our future when he sees who we are, who he's created us to be. Think about that. Mercy is not God looking at our past as a checklist of all the sins that we've committed and that we should feel bad for. Rather, When God shows us His mercy, He looks at the man or the woman that He's created us to be, and He bets on that. He bets on our future. Tonight, we're going to come to receive that God. We're going to come receive the Father who not only runs out to the horizon to meet us, but runs the the infinite step from heaven to here, from heaven to this altar to meet you and I. A sinner, someone small, someone broken, to wrap us in his arms. As we receive him, he receives us all the more. That same God who takes that step takes that step in the confessional every time we go to him to show us that mercy. Like we have that ability to be able to be channels of mercy out in the world. The best way for us to practice that is to stand before Him broken. To stand before Him with our sin sin ready to offer it, saying, Lord, I have sinned against heaven and against You. And I don't deserve the gift You're going to give me. That's what happens every time we go to confession. That's what happens every time we approach this altar with a heart that's open and that's ready to receive the Lord. Because we have a world right now that needs ministers of mercy more than it ever has. I think every one of us can think of somebody who's like the sheep, who's just kind of wandered off who kind of maybe lost the way, got separated from the flock, and has just kind of wandered off into their own life of sin. Or somebody who's like the coin, who doesn't even know their loss. Who needs someone to actively search them out and bring them back. But out of ignorance, out of sloth, out of laziness, whatever it is, has just kind of 
They don't even know they're out. Or even more so, like the younger son, who's basically looked and said, I reject you. I don't need the church. I don't need this God. I'm done. We have the ability to be those ministers of mercy, like the Father, who go out into those situations and help bring God's children back. But oftentimes, our vice tends to be we just become self-righteous like the older son. We just become someone who points fingers, who counts how many people we don't recognize at Christmas at Easter Mass, who just looks, who just looks at our spiritual life and tries to measure it up against another. I think that's the vice of the Christian. I think that's the, the vice that many people that sit in the pew on Sunday struggle with. We're not called to be the judge. We're called to be little. We're called to be children before a father. And we're called to, to, to follow the example of that father and to go out and to spread that mercy, that compassion. To go to our friends, our family, those who are struggling, those who are lost, and to invite them back. To repeat the words of the psalmist today, when he says, I will rise and go to my father's house and invite someone to come with us. Tonight we have the opportunity to arise and come to our father who's more than willing to receive us as we receive Him. And I challenge you, over the next week, find the time to rise and see Him and to to intimately experience that mercy in the sacrament of confession. Because God's waiting. God's desiring to love us in that way. And God's desiring us to spread that mercy all of those we come in contact with in our day-to-day life. Amen.